We welcome you again. Great to have you with us. Uh, my name's Neil. I'm one of the leaders here. And uh, we're just finishing off in the book of Jonah. If you've got a Bible, uh, you could turn to Jonah. If you haven't got a Bible, um, Alan has got one at the back and he can sort you out and he could probably turn to Jonah for you um, as well. Well, we're in Jonah chapter four, just the, the back end, the last uh, chapter of Jonah. We're going to round things out this afternoon. Um, when I was a lot younger, there was a uh, a collection of books or a bit of a fad that was going around called um, Magic Eye Books. Anyone remember them? And it was a bit of a... No? No one? Surely someone... Yeah, some of us do. Yeah, they're probably still around today. We haven't graduated from books. They still exist, don't they? But the Magic Eye Books were basically a, a picture, like lots of different colours on the page. And you had to like squint at it and like um, just, I don't know, try and figure out what was behind. And it just looked like a pattern, but there was an actual picture in there. Anyway, my brother and I used to get these books all the time. And Sean had the knack for it, but I could never, I could never work it out. And I'd be squinting and trying, and Sean was like, apparently the, the trick was if you could go cross-eyed, then you could work it out. Well, I could never go cross-eyed, so I could never work it out. And Sean was like, no, you, you need to put it, like tilt it at a certain angle. It's, it's got to work in a certain perspective. And I could never do it. It used to get me really frustrated, but handily enough, at the back of the book, there was a cheat sheet, remember that? And it would tell you, it would give you the actual picture next to the colours. And so I just used to cut to the chase and I'd, when Sean wasn't looking, I'd have a little look at, at what it was. And then when we're sitting together, we'd be like, oh yeah, it's a, it's a pyramid, isn't it? And, and sometimes I get it right, sometimes I might get it a little mixed up. But, but it used to make me really frustrated and really angry that I couldn't see it properly. And actually, when we get to Jonah chapter 4, there's, there's a sense in which Jonah finds himself in a similar place. Like, he, he can't see the picture that's in front of him, right? He's not, he's not seeing what's going on with the right perspective. And just like I was doing with these Magic Eye books, he gets angry. He gets frustrated. So just to catch you up where we are in the book, chapter one in Jonah, you might have heard of this guy before, Jonah and the whale is a, is a common story. Well, we've been working through chapter by chapter. And in chapter one, we hear of this man who was called by God to go and take a message to the Ninevites. And we learned that the Ninevites were the worst people ever. Like they were a horrendous people. They were wicked people. And God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and to, and to declare a message to them. And Jonah doesn't want to go. He's terrified. Remember, he's working through these issues of, of fear and, and, uh, and preference and, and comfort. And, and he doesn't want, to, doesn't want to push past those things to take this message from God to a people who are effectively his enemies. So what does he do? He runs. He jumps on a ship and he tries to get as far away from God as he can. Like he literally is trying to get to the end of the earth. Like he wants to get as far away from God as he can, but God, as he does, pursues him. And he can't escape from God. Like Jonah gets to the point where he's that desperate, he tries to throw himself overboard and end his life. But even in the seas, God pursues him and sends a fish to swallow up Jonah. And then in chapter two, we hear this psalm of Jonah, this this song where Jonah, it seems, comes to his senses and understands something about who God is. 
And he gives this great declaration, salvation belongs to the Lord. Those who, who chase after vain idols, they forfeit for themselves the steadfast love of the Lord. And Jonah seems to understand that actually, if we want to live a life obedient to God, we need to submit to his will. We need to, we need to receive the goodness that comes from him. And he has the prerogative of who he will save and who he won't. But then we get into chapter three and we see this reluctant missionary, this reluctant prophet Jonah. He ends up in Nineveh. After the fish spit him out onto dry land. And he takes this message from God. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. But he's just, there's something about him that just doesn't believe that God can actually <coughs> save these people. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But, but there's something within Jonah that's still like, eh, yeah, but not for these people. But then God does something spectacular, remember. We saw it last week. Jonah steps back and everyone in the city is Transformed. Remember how we could read that declaration from Jonah, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, or yet 40 days and Nineveh will be transformed. And God does a miraculous work of transformation. 120,000 people from the king down to the lowest. They come in repentance and put their faith in God for salvation. But then we saw as we just entered in a little bit into Jonah chapter 4 last week, Jonah struggles with that, big time. We pick it up again in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, and we'll read to the end. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do do you be well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Let me just pray again before we jump in. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for how we've been reminded already of how you move towards us. Your love towards us is, is great, that is abundant, that is abounding. And we thank you that, that in your word we, we get to see something of who you are. We thank you that we see that you are a God of justice, but you are also a God of mercy. And we pray that as we just seek to understand a little bit of, of who you are and understand your truth to us this afternoon, that, 
that we would find ourselves as recipients of your mercy, that we would find ourselves as those who, who receive your compassion. And Father, thank you that we see that and we experience that through your son. And these are his words to us this afternoon. These are your words, Lord Jesus, and we believe that, that they are living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we pray that by the power of your spirit, that you would change us, that you would grow us to love you more. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Chapter 3, Jonah has just seen the impossible. Revival breaks out in Nineveh. And then in chapter 4, it's, it's just interesting, isn't it? Like the whole chapter is just an interesting read. Jonah's perspective on the whole experience right from the start in chapter one, where he resists God, where he tries to run away from God. Yet God just miraculously sends his fist to save him, save him from death. And then he miraculously sees God do this work in Nineveh. And and in chapter four, verse one, he's fuming. He's angry. In fact, he isn't just angry in verse one. What does it say? He is exceedingly angry. Like as angry as you can be. And then in verse two, he points the finger at God. He's like, I told you this was going to happen. This is why I ran away. I told you this all along. He points the finger at God and he's like, this is, you've made a mistake. This is all your fault. Like it's just crazy, isn't it? As we read it. And then in verse two, he even quotes God's character back at him in order to try and show God that he's made the mistake. In verse two, you are a gracious God. Merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And that creed, you're probably familiar with it if you've read the Bible at all. That creed is, is used nine times in the Old Testament. Last year, we went through the book of the Exodus, you know, the story of Moses. And, and in the Exodus, that's where we see this creed spoken to us for the first time. So if you know the story of the Exodus, Moses goes up the mountain. He's led God's people out of Egypt. He goes up the mountain, gets the commandments from God. And on his way back down the mountain... The last thing on earth that he expects to see, but he sees it. God's people have melted all their gold together and they've made an ugly looking calf and they're bowing down and worshiping. And God's anger boils over and God says, I'm done with these people. I've literally just saved them. I brought them out of Egypt and this is the first thing that they want to do. Worship an idol. I'm done. But Moses intercedes. And God hears Moses' intercession. And in Exodus uh, chapter 34, God relents. He holds back his anger. And actually, he makes a covenant with God's people. And this is the covenant that he makes with them. It's part of the promise that he will be this God to them. He reminds them of his beautiful character, that he is gracious. He is merciful. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. And he will relent from disaster towards his people. And Jonah repeats that creed back to God, literally telling God the very things that he's just seen God do to the Ninevites. But he uses it as an accusation towards God. Like Jonah is so blinded. He's so blinded by his anger. And we'll see as we make our way through the chapter that ultimately his anger, Jonah's anger, it's it's an issue of comfort for him. 
That's what's going on here. See, this creed was given to God's people, Israel, and it was part of a covenant, a a family promise that was given to them. And as Jonah steps back and sees the Ninevites, God's God's enemies, the people who who aren't part of this covenant people, as, as Jonah sees God be merciful to them and be gracious to them and for them to receive the steadfast love of God and for God to relent from disaster towards them, as he sees God do that, he recognizes that they're being brought into God's covenant promise. And he doesn't like it. God's covenant promises are okay for God's people, Jonah thinks, but not for, not for those people. Like, love me. Like, love, love your people, God, but don't love those people outside of your promises. Jonah's becoming angry because his comfort is being disrupted. He's blinded from the beauty of what God has just done. And in verse 3, it's so spectacular, isn't it? In verse 3, he is so angry, he wants to die again, right? He's already had this death experience in the fish. And he's like, yeah, do you know what? I'd rather have that again than see you welcome these people into your covenant family. And in verse 4, God rhetorically asks him, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Like, it's as if God is saying, just, whoa, just slow down, Jonah. Just step back and just get a better perspective. Just see what I've just done. Like, you don't need to be angry. It's a little bit like, you know, um, when you're in Tesco's and you see that child in the sweet aisle or in the fizzy drinks aisle and they want it, but their parents aren't giving it to them. And so the child throws himself on the floor and they're wriggling and they're writhing and they're screaming, I want that. And their parents, fair play, has got resolved. And they're like, you're not having it. That's a little bit like Jonah. He is a spoiled child. I want, no, I don't want that. It's more like that. And God's saying, no, I've given it. Just, just look at the beauty of what I've done. And Jonah throws his toys at the pram. He's like, I'd rather die. I would rather die. It's disproportionate, slightly, I think. We might laugh a little bit at Jonah, but actually there's a bigger picture that's going on here. It might just give us a little bit of a window into why Jonah is so spectacularly angry. See, during Jonah's day, there was another prophet called Amos. And Amos is, is God's mouthpiece to the nations. And we need to know that at this time in history, Israel, they weren't, they weren't a good people. Like they were God's covenant people. He'd set his affections on them, but they weren't doing anything to, to deserve God's love. Like they were doing the opposite. They were running after idols. They were walking in disobedience. God isn't pleased with Israel. And so Amos is told to take a message to God's people. The message first is repent. I'm going to give you a chance to turn away from your sin and turn back to me. So so God gives this message of repentance through Amos to his people. Repent, turn away from your sin, come back to me. But then the second part of the message is this. If you don't repent, then judgment is coming. And that's what you deserve. That's what we all deserve when we break God's holy law, when when we sin against him. That's what we all deserve, judgment. And so God, in his justice, says, please come back to me. But if you don't, you need to know that judgment is coming. And here is the warning. For God's people in this time, it was a specific type of judgment that was coming. Amos comes and says, if we do not repent, God is going to bring a foreign nation to overthrow us. A foreign nation to to take control of us and they're going to destroy us. And you read the book of Amos and actually what you read, it's devastation. It's destruction. 
God is going to bring this foreign nation to deal with rebellious Israel. And actually, 50 years after Jonah has his tantrum, that is what happens. Israel don't repent. And so God gives them the judgment that he said that was coming. And the Assyrians come and they take over Israel and they destroy God's people. And it's important to know who who was part of the Assyrians. The Ninevites. The Ninevites were part of the Assyrians. The very people that God has just saved from destruction were part of the Assyrians, the people who would come and pour out God's judgment on Israel. So here's what I think what is going on in Jonah's heart. Jonah knows that the Assyrians, these Ninevites, could be the nation that are coming to destroy Israel. He knows that. And Jonah doesn't want Israel to be destroyed. And so Jonah gets angry with God for preserving the people who could be coming to destroy his people. Do you follow that? Like, I think that's some of why Jonah's so angry. I think that's why he's so incensed because he's like, God, you are protecting the very people that could destroy your covenant people. But see, Jonah is looking at the picture in front of him and he's seeing through his perspective, which isn't the same perspective as God. God sees perfectly and he is in perfect control and Jonah would do well to quit viewing the world through his finite lens and start trusting God. See, there's there's real irony. There's irony all over this book. But the irony for Jonah in chapter four, when he takes that position of self-righteous anger, the irony is that what he thinks the merciful thing for God to do is to destroy the Assyrians to get rid of them, to get rid of the Ninevites. But what he doesn't see is this. Amos chapter nine, verse nine. In chapter nine, you hear about the destruction that is coming to Israel. You hear how God is going to pour out his judgments and it's fierce. But then in chapter nine, verse nine, we read this. I will destroy it. He's talking about Israel. I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. So in 721 BC, God commands the Assyrians to come and judge Israel, but also to save a remnant, to carry part of God's people away, to, to protect a portion of God's people from death and to carry them into exile. So it's interesting, right? If God was the type of God that Jonah wanted him to be, one who just destroyed the wicked nations, If that is the God that Jonah actually gets, then Israel would be no more. (laughs) He would have finished Israel off. All of them would be gone. But instead, God sovereignly appoints the very people that Jonah wants dead to save a remnant. See, Jonah didn't have the right perspective. And God's question in verse four of Jonah here, it's supposed to disarm Jonah. Jonah, come on, you don't need to be hungry. Just trust me. You can't see it, but just trust me. You don't need to be angry, but instead, it just turns his tantrum up a level. Like in verse five, he he throws his toys out of the pram and then he goes to a place, probably up on a hill to watch over the city, to look out at the city. He wants to see what's going to become of Nineveh. And verse five only makes sense. Like Jonah taking that position on the hill to watch Nineveh only makes sense if Jonah actually thinks that God is going to change his mind. Like that's the only reason why he'd stop and just sit there and watch. Because he actually thinks, you know what? God's going to listen to me. He's going to realise he's made a mistake. And he's going to pour out his wrath on the Ninevites. So I'm just going to sit here and wait. And wait until he does it. And so he sits 
and he waits. But then what happens? It gets a little bit hot. So he builds a booth, a tent, a bit of a covering over him to get some shade. And then after that, he's already got shade, but God appoints a plant to grow. And it's big enough that it covers Jonah. It gives him even more shade. And in verse 6, we read that Jonah is glad. In fact, it's not just that he's glad. What does it say? He is exceedingly glad. That word again. Our exceedingly mad prophet is now exceedingly glad because he's got shade from this plant. And don't miss, this is another miracle. We've seen a few miracles, haven't we, in Jonah, the fish swallowing Jonah up. God grows a plant, a tree, whatever it is, big enough to cover Jonah, like, immediately. And it's interesting, Jonah already has shade. He's got this tent, he's got this booth, this covering that gives him shade. But then when he sees God's miracle, it's, it's then that he's exceedingly glad. Let me just kind of help us see what's going on here. Jonah's still seeing things in the wrong way. He sets out his little lookout post. He's sitting there with his popcorn and his beer, waiting just to see God destroy Nineveh. He's looking out, seeing if God is going to finish these people off. He's already got some shade, but then God giving him this plant to give him more, to give him more shade, it's a little bit like Jonah feels like God is validating him. Oh, he's giving me some more shade. He's making me comfortable. That, in fact, is why the plant is given. God gives it to him because of his discomfort. God gives him this plant to make him comfortable. So Jonah's sitting there thinking, yeah, all right. God's with me here. Like he's, he's giving me this plant to validate my anger. He is going to pour out wrath on these people. But in verse 7, the next day what happens? God appoints a worm to eat up the plant. And then he appoints a hot east wind to burn on Jonah's head in verse 8. And if he wasn't angry already, he's angry now. This plant, which was a source of comfort to Jonah, which had served him so well, it's now gone. And Jonah's angry. God, what are you doing? And in verse 8, again, he's so angry. He's like, right, I've had enough. Just take me. For the third time, he wants his life to be over. Just take me. I'm so comfortable. And you've removed the thing that was giving me comfort and ease. Just take me. Take my life. And verse 9, God asks him again, Jonah, do you do well to be angry for that plant? Are you angry for that plant? And Jonah says, yeah, angry enough to die. Like we can see how crazy this is, right? It's a plant, a stick. Angry enough to die. Like Jonah just can't see it. He can't see the beauty of what God has just done. His comfort is blinding him from seeing the compassionate heart of God. And so in verse 10 and 11, God helps him see it. God helps him see his heart of compassion. He gives this bit of a bit of a comparison just to help Jonah get perspective. Jonah, you pity the plant which you didn't even make. You pity it because it served your purpose. It gave you comfort. You pity this plant which was literally here for a day. And then it was gone like you're, you're emotionally invested in a stick. So emotionally invested you're willing to die. That's how you see it, Jonah. Let me tell you how I see it. 
what's going on here. Here is a city of 120,000 people who don't know the truth. They're sinful and they deserve judgment, but they are ignorantly sinful. That's what it means. The phrase there in verse 11 that they don't know their right hand from their left, it means that they're ignorant. Do they deserve judgment? Yes, but they're ignorant to the truth that God wants to save them. And as God looks out at the Ninevites and as he looks out across all humanity, he sees that we are image bearers who have no hope unless a message of salvation comes to them. God sees that the plant is temporary. It came and went in a day, but he knows that the souls of these people, they're eternal. The Lord is saying to Jonah, compassion is more important than comfort. I need to see that, Jonah. Compassion is more important than comfort. And then we get to verse 11, and it ends. Like, I'm turning the page and I'm looking for chapter 5, and it's not there. Like, we want a chapter 5 because we don't want it to end like that. It ends so abruptly, but I think the whole narrative is leading us to see the compassionate heart of God. And then at the end of chapter four, it's not written, but we're supposed to hear a voice that invites us to share in that heart, to share in the compassionate heart of God, to share that heart with him, to see the world as God sees it, to be willing to forsake our comfort and share in his heart. That's the whole heart of this message, that God's heart breaks for the lost, that he wants to take a message of salvation to them. And that isn't just his heart that he wants to keep for himself. He wants to share that heart with his people. He wants us to put away our comfort. Like to see the stupidity of, 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 of our hearts being broken for a stick. Or for a plant. Or for a house. Or for a car. Or for your work. Or for whatever it is. And actually to have your heart broken for the things that matter. Eternal souls who are walking towards an eternity away from God. That's what God wants us to feel. That's the heart that he wants us to share. He wants us to see the world as he sees it. Be willing to let go of our comfort and share in his heart. Uh, last night, um, we had a wonderful time in the cathedral. Elizabeth, my wife, sings for uh, the cathedral choir. And it is as, as amazing as it sounds. It was an amazing evening. There must have been, I don't know, 100 people singing. And... Um, all the choir boys are there with the, you know, the things and stuff. And, um, and, and an orchestra, like a real live orchestra with um, oh, instruments, um, <laughs> strings, instruments, um, woodwind and um, the trumpets. And it was amazing. Honestly, it was incredible. And they were doing Vivaldi's Gloria. Anyway, before it started, we're all seated. We're nearly on the front row. It's brilliant. Like, you can see everything that's going on. And everyone comes in, all the choir take their seat. And it's all quiet, it's all hushed. And by the way, the acoustics in the cathedral, when the choir was singing, just like heavenly. Anyway, before all that starts, everyone takes their seat. And all the orchestra take their seat. But there's a seat that's empty. And there's silence in the cathedral. And then this little fellow walks in, sits down with a violin. And he's called the first chair violinist. Look this up. And his job, he's got a lot of jobs to do. He holds the whole thing together. But his first job and the most important job as he sits down is he plays a, a, a note on his violin. Anyone know what it would be? A. He plays A on his violin. Holds it, something like that. And then everyone else in the orchestra tunes to his note. 
because they might be out a little bit. And like this music is so perfect. It's got to be spot on. And if, if the oboe's out a little bit or the trumpet's out a little bit or the, the double bass is out a little bit, it's just not going to sound quite right. And so the first year violinist comes in, he has the perfect note all ready to go and he plays it and everyone else, they start tuning and fiddling with the little things and, and then eventually everyone is playing the same key. See, folks, when God saves us, we are filled with his spirit. We are filled with his wisdom, with his grace, with his love, with his patience, with his kindness. When we are saved, our eyes are opened to see the world like he sees it. And if you are a Christian, just think back to that, to that day of salvation, if you can remember it. When you had a fresh perspective on earthly things. Like the things that we hold on to, earthly comforts. And actually, we saw maybe for the first time in our lives how temporary they are and how fleeting they are and how we don't want to live our lives just acquiring more and more stuff. Remember that day? And remember how we were able to see, see people with an eternal perspective for the first time in our lives to look out at the crowds and to see our friends and see our neighbours and see our family who don't know God and for our hearts to be broken for them. And to see them like God sees them. And to see that these people aren't here just for 70 years. They are going somewhere. And they are either going to hell or they are going to heaven. Remember that day when that was so clear and our hearts broke for it? Remember the early days when we shared the missional heart of God? But if you're like me, as time goes on, and as you get older and as you enjoy the things of the world more, you know what happens? We, we, get, out of, we get out of tune. Like one, once we were, just, we were just sharing this heart of God so, so clearly and we were playing the same tune. And then as life goes on, we find ourselves just being slightly out of tune. We fall in love with the world. We start treasuring our Jonah plants. We prioritize comfort over compassion. We get disproportionately angry when our comfort is threatened. We forget that there are more than 120,000 people in this city, much more, who don't know their left hand from their right hand. And they're heading to hell. And can I be honest? Like, I think I'm there. I think I've forgotten to play the tune. I've forgotten how to share the heart of God. I've forgotten what the missional heart of God is. I'm not playing that perfect melody like he would want us to play. And this book has, has brought me to a place as I'm studying chapter four this week where I've come to the conclusion I need to retune. And I suspect I'm probably not the only one. I think there's probably many of us here who need to retune to God's missional heart. So just think back to the orchestra. Like if you know a little bit about music, you'll, you'll follow where I'm going. Like instruments go out of tune for a reason, right? Like maybe, firstly, when they turn up at the, the cathedral, maybe, maybe their instrument is out of tune because they've not used it for a while. It's just been in the box. And so maybe that's true for you. Maybe you haven't stepped out in mission. Maybe you haven't pursued evangelistic opportunities for a while and you just feel a bit rusty. Just feel a bit out of practice. If that's you, you need to retune. You need to understand the missional heart of God again. You need to see that his desire is to seek and save the lost. Another reason why instruments go out of tune is because of a change in environment. Like you try and play this piano, it'll sound terrible. Because this room is constantly hot and cold. 
And if you've got an instrument, like that's what happens. Humidity, heat, cold can make an instrument go out of tune. And maybe, maybe the reason that you're out of tune is because of the heat of the culture that we live in. Like it's difficult to be a Christian. It's difficult to be evangelistic because culture is pressing in on us and saying, be quiet. I don't want to hear the gospel. I don't want to hear that Jesus is the only way to salvation. So just shut your mouth and keep in your box. And we feel that pressure. We feel the heat around us in the culture. Or maybe, maybe you're caught up in a culture of personal, personal comfort. That's the world we live in. That's the God, the idol of our age, to be comfortable. To pour all your money, to pour all your energy and your effort and your resources and your time into just living a comfortable life. Maybe you're feeling the heat from the culture in that way. And if that's you, you need to reach you. You need to come back to hear and understand the missional heart of God. Or maybe the last reason here. Maybe you're out of tune because you've actually been working hard. So there wasn't an interval yesterday, but quite often an interval is needed when there's a long orchestral piece. Because halfway through, if these guys have been like blasting the, the violin or like, I don't know, you know, doing what they do. Like when they're working these instruments hard, they go out of tune. Like even within an hour of playing them. The strings get a bit looser and the trumpet things start getting a bit sticky and, and they need to stop and take a pause and they need to sit and just, just the first violin chair guy, like he needs to do his thing again. And they just take a break and he plays A and everyone gets back into key. Do you know what? Maybe you've been, maybe you've been pouring all your energy into the church. You've been working really hard. You've been serving in your ministry really faithfully. You've been pouring in your time and your energy and your effort and you've been working really hard, but actually you've drifted out of the key that you were supposed to be playing. Do you follow me? Church ministry can be so subtly dangerous in that way. Like I struggle with this. Like I spend most of my week preparing to preach or meeting with people for pastoral meetings or spending time with ministry teams or, or leaders or time with Ryan. And I love that stuff and it's important. But actually, sometimes I find that I haven't given any time to the primary task that God has actually given me, which is to go and make disciples. And I've been working so hard on these other things that I've fallen out of tune with the very thing that I should have given my life to. I suspect all of us probably fall into one of those camps. We haven't just engaged that missional muscle for a while or maybe the, the pressure of culture is pressing in and we just feel either too comfortable or too fearful to actually take the gospel to the people around us or maybe you've just become distracted and actually you're working so hard on the things of the church that you've, you've become distracted from the primary thing that you've been called to do. I think probably all of us fall into one of those camps and all of us would do well to retune our hearts to the compassionate heart of God. Where do we start to do that? How do we even begin to think about doing that? Well, whereas the orchestra looks to the first chair violinist, that little fella with his violin, who's playing the perfect note, we look to Jesus who perfectly shares the compassionate heart of God because he is God. And we see his compassionate heart exposed so powerfully through the Gospels, but maybe we see it on display most clearly in Matthew chapter 9. Uh, Karis will throw it up for us. Matthew chapter 9. We read this. Jesus has been teaching the crowds and 
And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You see the parallels and the contrasts with Jonah? Both Jonah have gone through a city and they're proclaiming the truth of God. Both Jonah and Jesus stop and turn and look at the people in the city. But whereas Jonah's heart was filled with anger, what's Jesus' heart filled with? Compassion. And don't confuse compassion with feeling sorry for someone. That isn't what Jesus is saying. He isn't feeling sorry for the crowds. Compassion is much more powerful than that. Compassion, as we see in our language, is actually made up of two words. So you know that our English language comes from Latin? Um, well, the, the original Latin word is, is, well, compassion is split into two. The first aspect is com. The second aspect is passio. And you put them together, you get compassio or compassion. That first word, com, anyone have an idea what that might mean, com? Communication. Kind of, yeah, yeah, kind of. Any, anyone want to raise Georgina? <laughs> with. So communication is, is something we do with other people. You can't communicate on your own. You've got to communicate with people. Come is with, yeah. Passio, anyone have an idea what that means? Go on. Yeah, kind of. Well, we look at, at maybe some aspects of Christ's life as passion, but actually the, the real meaning there is suffer. To suffer with. That's what compassion means. It's not feeling sorry for someone. It's to suffer with them. See, as we read Matthew chapter 9, here's what Jesus is saying. Here's the picture that we get of Jesus as he looks out on the crowds. I'm willing to enter into their suffering with them. And like, the people in the crowds, they're just ordinary people. Like, Jesus meets some people who are truly broken. Right? And who have difficulties in life. The people that he's talking about here, these are just normal people. Like on the outside, it doesn't look like they've got any problems. So why would Jesus say, I am willing to suffer with these people? Well, because he sees past their glossy exterior and he's able to look into their hearts and look into their souls and see that they are broken people, that they are experiencing suffering, but it's a spiritual type of suffering. And that's why he says that they are like sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless, because they are. They are hopelessly walking into an eternity of suffering. And Jesus sees it. And he says, I'm going to suffer. He doesn't even say I'm going to suffer with them. He says, I'm going to suffer for them. He takes it to the next level. And that is what he does at the cross. Jesus actively bears the spiritual suffering that we should be carrying. The judgments of God for our sin, the eternal wrath of God for our rebellion. On the cross, Jesus moves towards us in compassion. And he says, I'm not just going to suffer with them. I'm going to remove their spiritual suffering from them. I'm going to suffer for them in their place. And he steps into our place as our substitute. And receives everything that we should receive for our rebellion to God. And in exchange for the suffering that he takes for us, he gives us his peace. And his love. And he clothes us in his righteousness. And through his resurrection, he brings us into eternal life with him. 
folks, that isn't all that he does. Back in chapter 9, when he's looking out to the crowds and he's filled with compassion, like ultimately we know where their hope is going to be found, right? We know where their spiritual suffering is going to be dealt with. We know that it's going to be dealt with at the cross and the resurrection. Like we can't do that for people. Like that isn't our job, all right? We know that as, as, as Christians, we can't save people. Ultimately, that is where their hope in their spiritual suffering is going to come from. But in Matthew 9, what does Jesus say that the crowds need? In verse 37, he says they need workers. Workers to go into the harvest. He turns to his disciples and he says, pray for them. Pray for workers to go into the harvest. Why? Because the harvest is plentiful because there are so many souls to be brought in. So he says to his disciples, pray. Pray for people to go. Pray for workers to enter into the spiritual suffering of the world. And by the time we get to Matthew chapter 28, to the end of Matthew's gospel, it's clear what these these workers are to go with. They're to go with the news, the good news of the servant who suffers for them. They're to go with the message of the cross and the resurrection. They're to go with, remember that great declaration in Jonah chapter 2. They're to go with salvation belongs to the Lord. That's what they're to go with. And I wonder if in Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus says to his disciples, pray for workers to go. I wonder whether they actually did. Whether they actually did pray for workers to go into the harvest. I suspect they probably did. Because this is a a command from Jesus. Like Jesus says specifically, pray for workers to go into the harvest. Pray for those to go and take this message of good news to the lost. Now, did God answer their prayer? Of course he did. In fact, those disciples became the answer to their own prayer. And then the 3,000 people who put their faith in Jesus at Pentecost in Jerusalem became workers And they went in and then the converts in Antioch became workers and they went in. And then in Turkey and in Italy and in Spain and all the way to us as the gospel spread to England, this prayer has been being answered every year since Jesus first told his disciples to pray. it, And he's answering it even right now through us. Please, folks, don't think that that when Jesus says and he says, pray for workers to go into the harvest. Please don't think that he's thinking about this special elite type of Christian, a missionary. Well, he is talking about missionaries, but he's talking about all of us. Remember what we've been saying week after week after week. God saves sinners to send saved sinners to save more sinners. I got it, yes. <laughs> when he's talking about workers going into the harvest, he's talking about us. He's talking about sinners who have been saved to go and save more sinners. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And here we are. Liberty Church, in Lark Lane, in the city of Liverpool, where the harvest is plentiful. And there is here a room full of workers, <coughs> ready to go. And throughout this incredible book, folks, God has been sovereignly working to open Jonah's eyes. Have you seen his sovereignty? We haven't really tapped into that much, but it's been there so strongly. He appointed the storm, he appointed the fish, he appointed the plant, he appointed the scorching wind. And he's been working throughout this beautiful book to help Jonah see the futility of a life that settles for comfort and the desperate need to share in God's heart of compassion for the lost. And that's the message for us today too. 
God's people, we are to have our eyes opened to the spiritual condition of our city. We're to see like Jesus sees that they are sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. We're to hold lightly to comfort, which keeps us from the mission. We're to tune our hearts to share in the heart of God, this compassionate heart. And we're to take the message of our suffering servants to this great city. And I hope by now we've seen where our help comes from. It comes from Jesus. He is the obedient missionary. He is the one who saves. He is the one who is able to do that Nineveh-type work of transforming a whole city. And he is the one who has the compassion that we need to fill our hearts with. So if you're serious about stepping out into this community, being God's worker in this harvest, sharing in his heart of compassion, and maybe this afternoon, if you've begun to recognise that that comfort for you has been more of a home than compassion. Maybe this afternoon, if you've recognised that you're out of tune slightly, for whatever reason, and here's what I'd encourage you to do. I'm going to pray for us now. And I'd encourage you, if you want to retune your heart to the compassionate heart of God, if you want to say, do you know what, Lord? I'm terrified about going out and sharing the gospel with people around me. I'm anxious about that. There's, there's so many things that are stopping me, but I want to go. And Lord, do you know what? I, I am out of tune. And I want, your, I want your heart to be my heart. Oh Lord, I want you to help me to see the people around me like you see them. Well, if that's you, then as I'm praying, can I encourage you just to put your hands out? And this is, a, this is just a sign of dependence on God. This is a saying, do you know what, God, I need you. I want to be faithful, but I just struggle, and so I need you. So if that's you, just put your hands out. I'm just going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing. Father, how we thank you for this little book that we've been in that has just shown us so clearly your heart. Thank you that you, thank you, Father, that you, you haven't left us to figure things out on our own. You haven't left us to our own destruction, but you sent help. Thank you for your son. Thank you for how we see him in this book and how we see aspects of what it looks like to follow him faithfully and struggle. Thank you that, that he is the faithful missionary. Thank you that as we look to him, we see one who we want to be like, but we confess that we struggle. I know there'll be lots of us in this room, Father, who feel out of tune. And so I pray now that you would retune us. Tune our hearts to look out across this city like you would look out across it. And to feel compassion. Tune our hearts to believe that you can save Tune our hearts to see that you have done that in our lives already, that you have taken a broken sinner and you have lifted him up and you have placed us into a a space and an eternity that we should not be in, but you, by your grace, have saved us. Tune our hearts to believe that you can do that again. Tune our hearts to see, Lord Jesus, that we need you before anything else, before we are even men and women who step out and take this good uh, news to the world around us, help us to see that we desperately need you. 
Fill our hearts with your spirit, Lord Jesus. And for your church here, for Liberty Church, I pray that that you will have been provoking in us through this book a desire, a deep desire, a desperation to see this city won for you. And we can't do this on our own. So spirit, as you fill us, we pray that you would equip us. Give us boldness. Give us courage. Give us the words to speak. Help us to stay focused, not to drift and get distracted. But help us actually to go. And Father, as we pray that prayer, we ask that you would do what only you can do. That you would save. Do that miraculous work in our city, we pray. Save sinners. And send those saved sinners to save more sins. Father, we ask that not for our glory, but all for you, for the glory of your Son.